Welcome back to the latest episode of Analyzing Acme, a series part of the Rebuildable podcast. I'm your host, Matt Gentile. And in our latest episode today, we're analyzing a certain part right around the 2021 trade deadline, a point where the regime pivoted when it seemed like the Bulls were on this path of rebuilding and developing their young roster. Then all of a sudden, they make a trade for Nikola Vucevic, and it's almost like the floodgates open to this direction of going into a win-now mode and flipping to a movement to acquire more established veteran players. In that process, two major pieces were moved, Wendell Carter and Laurie Markkinen. Both these moves are heavily judged by Bulls fans, especially with the benefit of hindsight, because we've seen Wendell Carter and his game improve over time. And of course, we've seen Laurie Markkinen take a step towards all-star status. And on the flip side, the Chicago Bulls seem to be stuck in the middle, despite having what seems to be some proven commodities like Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan, Nikola Vucevic, but they just don't seem to fit together. And I think a lot of Bulls fans ask this question. What if they had kept Laurie, Wendell, and continued with this youth movement? So excited to kind of go back in time here and talk about this decision to axe the young core. I have two guests with me that I'm really excited to talk to about it. So let's bring them on. First, the podfather, the original, the OG Bulls podcaster, uh, host of the Bulls Pete podcast, Doug Tonus. Doug, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. Glad to have you here. Uh, I think this is a topic that's definitely... Uh, in your wheelhouse too. So I'm looking forward to it. And also joining us from the CHGO Bulls podcast, frequent guest of the Rebuildable podcast. One of my favorites, Big Dave Watson. Dave, how's it going? Peace, bro. Everything's good. I'm feeling wonderful. Thanks for having me, Matt. Good to see you, Doug. Let's get into it, sir. Well, this topic, as I set it up for our listeners before you guys hopped on, I think this is like, to me, the turning point in the Acme era when... They decide to go from a youth movement to more of a, a veteran route, trying to uh, go into a, a win now mode right around the 2021 trade deadline. Um, so I want to actually, though, go back in time around the time when the Bulls hire Arturis Karnaschovas. And I want to start with you, Doug. When Arturis Karnaschovas was hired, what did you initially think his game plan was going to be to turn the roster around? I don't know if I had any particular thoughts. I mean, you never really have a whole lot of concept as to what a GM candidate is going to do. And he wasn't making the final decisions in Denver. So, you know, who really knows? You know, I, I does not surprise me. They took the route they did only because I think there was a lot of pressure from the fans to do that. And I think there was a lot of pressure from the front office. And if I were to guess going back with hindsight now, I would say the front office hired him because they wanted him or a candidate they hired to take the actions that he did. Like, I think Michael Reinsdorf wanted someone who had a plan that was, I'm going to come in and I'm going to make the playoffs within a year. I think that was kind of a requirement of whomever got the job was going to going to kind of operate in this way. Yeah, he, he, he said as much um, when he got here. He wanted to go to the playoffs and be a frequent uh visitor uh, of the playoffs and postseason basketball he valued it very very highly so uh, if that's going to be what you're going to do then you're you're going to bring in uh some veterans or you know guys in their fifth sixth year however you want to call it 
but you're going to bring those guys in and you're going to try to win now. So like you said, Doug, Doug is right on point. Like within a year, I'm going to need to see you in the playoffs. And that, that was his plan for sure. So the other piece to this equation, when you say Acme is the other half of that, Mark Eversley, mm-hmm. um, Mark Eversley. I know he kind of had a reputation of being, you know, more of a, a good relationship with players around the league um, kind of came with his background working at Nike. Uh, that was sort of his reputation memo when he was in Toronto and then with the 76ers. Just curious. And I'll start with you, Dave, and then we'll go to you, Doug. Mm-hmm. What did you think of that hire? What did you think he would bring to the table as act as Arturis's right hand man? Well, first of all, like I was just drunk off the juice of getting uh, somebody new in here that was saying I wanted to go to the playoffs and I wanted to win. So I'm with it. And I'm a, I'm the kind of guy when you get a new GM, new coach, new anything, I give them at least five years, especially a front office. I give them five years before I just, you know, all out attack, unless you show me you're just that incompetent for the job. So when he made the hire of Mark Eversley, I was accepting of it. I was sure. Fine. Um, Coming from Toronto, you know, I, I love the way Toronto is run. Uh, having the connections at Nike, half the league uh, is down with Nike. So I thought that that would open some doors as far as free agents are concerned. So I didn't have an issue with it. It wasn't looked at as a terrible decision at all around the league. People thought it was a really smart move, uh, bringing in Mark Eversley and bringing in AK uh, around the league. They thought that these were two of the right guys to be here at, with the Chicago Bulls. And I definitely uh, felt that for sure. Yeah, I can't say I disagree with either of the hirings when they were made. I mean, you really never know how anyone is going to act. And in a lot of ways, you don't really know how decisions are made. You know, we place all of the blame or credit on the EVP, or in this case, really Karnaschovas. Eversley is generally there to negotiate, to make contacts, to kind of keep things going and do a lot of that work. But the final decision maker really is Karnaschovas and how good or not good he is probably depends a lot on the collective opinion of all the scouts on the team and everyone else. Really, the only thing I think you can pin exactly on him is the overall strategic vision he has and and what his overall goals were and how he went to attempt them at a very high level. But a lot of the other stuff, it really is like a team effort. And, you know, you've got a lot of guys working for you that that help figure those things out. I like both those hires when they were made. Um, as anyone who's listened to me on my podcast with the Big Red Bus, I'm not a fan of the strategic direction of the front office as it unfolded over time. And I definitely want to get into more of that later because uh, I kind of want to have you guys make a pie chart for me. But we'll, we'll save that question as we get a little later in the in the episode. But I want to ask you guys to put yourself into the role of Arturis Karnaschovas and Mark Eversley. So I'm going to start with you, Doug, and then I'll, I'll go to you, Dave. If you were in Acme shoes um, in the 2020 2021 season, um, what would your game plan have been in terms of building this roster up? Like what route would you have taken if, if you were in that role? Well, for me, I would have probably continued to build through the draft. I think when you are a bad team, you need to collect assets. You need to build your asset base. There's a general theory I have, which is when you trade, you don't gain more than you give up unless you get really lucky. By default, you should view every trade you make 
is equal value. Now you might be getting long-term value for short-term value. You might be getting the reverse of that. You might be getting some value for monetary value, like whatever, but the total value and how you can use those assets is going to be roughly equivalent because you're not trading with morons. And so <laughs> if that's the case, when you're really bad and you need to build your assets, you need to aim towards long-term value. You can't trade your way into being a great short-term team when you're already really bad and, and get enough to get there. That would be my general theory. So I would have focused on long-term assets still uh, probably for another couple of years. Uh, the very first thing I'm doing is getting rid of the ball-headed menace. Very first. First step, first thing going in is getting rid of that foolish head coach that was here. That's my number that. one step. Yes, that number one. As soon as I sign, ink is dry on the paper. That's the first thing I'm doing is getting him out of here. Um, I would probably get rid of some of the young guys on the team. I don't want to give up a lot of draft capital, like a ton of it. Um, but I would get, I would have gotten rid of definitely some of the young guys on the squad without a doubt. Um, Cause it just wasn't clicking here. Um, so yeah, I, I have no problem with that kind of thinking. I have a problem with, in hindsight, of course, it looked, it looked worse, but getting, getting a uh, Lonzo is something I definitely would have done. Cause you know, as you know, I love point guards. It's, it's definitely something I would have done. It's something I wanted to do years before uh, was get Lonzo here uh, because the team was, was starving uh, for a point guard. And I thought he fit very well. And he obviously did until his body uh, betrayed him. So those, yeah, those are two, the two main things I probably would have done. Got rid of the menace signed a, a point guard uh, in Lonzo and traded some of the young guys to acquire capital to do what Doug was saying. And that's uh continue building a little bit through the draft, but also I want some veterans in here as well, because I do want to win now. Like I do think they had enough talent to, to get some certain um, pieces and some certain veterans in here to make a push uh, for the playoffs. Kind of piggyback off of that. And I'll start with you, Dave. We'll go to to you, Doug. If they kept everything almost as is or had most of that core still intact um, at the 2021 deadline and they only added Lonzo and maybe a few high-end role players that summer, where mm -hmm. do you think they'd be now? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, where would they be now if they kept? So you're saying still keeping that young core of Lowry, of Wendell, uh, Kobe, Zach, you keep you keeping all those guys and adding Lonzo to that with some high end role players, correct? Yeah, and, and I would say like maybe not the whole entire collection of the young core, but okay. some okay. some semblance of it. Okay. Depending on who you hire as a coach, because I think that is important uh, in this. Depending on who you hire as a coach, you can be either a seventh seed in my head or you're a tenth seed. And just, or depending, like, yeah, I, th I think you can end, wind up that way because IQ was severely lacking on this team and the desire to play was severely lacking on this team. And I think Lonzo kind of brought both of those things. People wanted to play with him and he's the smartest person on the floor. Um, so I think guys would have enjoyed that. But whatever coach they had was, was going to be key in, in that assessment too whether it was Ime Adoka, who I wanted uh, at the time, or if it ended up with Billy Donovan, who I don't think would have come if he knew he was going to be uh, with a youth movement. So I don't know if Billy Donovan would have been available 
uh, in this because Billy wants to win now. Like he he doesn't want to go through a youth movement either. Um, so yeah, I think it would depend on those factors, but I can see them honestly with that talent, with some high end role players who can actually shoot and rebound and have some IQ. Because the, the younger guys, I still had a lot of faith in developing, especially Lowry, as you, I'm sure you know. Um, I think with that, you you could challenge for a seventh or or a tenth seed. I'm gonna throw this out here, um, <laughs> just because that's one of my favorite things to say. It makes people really mad, and I'm a big fan of that. Mm-hmm. If Gar Foreman were still in charge of the team, we would have drafted Tyrese Halliburton because no one loves Iowa State guys more than Gar Foreman. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> If we had Gar, uh, sorry, Fair if point. we had Tyrese Halliburton, Kobe White, Zach Levine, Franz Wagner, Larry Markkinen, Wendell Carter Jr., and Alex Caruso, or just some other high-end role player, I don't know how good you think this team would be, but it would sure be better than the seventh seed. So if I mean, you want to like think about like just what we could have had, like, I mean, it wouldn't be a top four seed, I don't think. But if you just had all those guys, and they're also outside of Zach, all under 25. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just like a loaded set of talent. Mm. You know, and that's why you have to keep building to the draft. And I get what Dave said earlier, like it wasn't working here. You had to make some changes. You had to move some guys. And maybe you miss out on some of that because of it. But you don't move them for 30-plus-year-old guys who are stat fillers that don't impact winning. And that's that's kind of what we did. Like, ultimately, that's what we did. And uh, that, that's what was disappointing was if you had just moved him for draft capital, which is kind of what the past regime always did when they moved off guys, Tyrus Thomas, Nicole Miritich, Tabo Cephalosha, James Johnson, Eddie Curry, you know, like this goes on and on. They just moved guys for draft capital when they said they weren't going to work. Uh, I would have much preferred that approach, you know, towards continuing to rebuild. If you just thought you needed to keep moving this forward. Let me, let me though, kind of put it back on point though. So let's say all things the same, you pick Patrick Williams and and that's part of your, your young core. I mean, do you think we're kind of still in the same boat we are now, even with just younger players, or do you think maybe things work out slightly better? Probably better and not a lot better, but the fact that everyone would be cheaper and younger from a, if you need to move on and do something different, you would have a lot more value than you do today. Like you, hmm. you just would rather be around cheap guys that are under 25 than expensive guys who are over 30. Like if you're not winning, if you're not winning, even if you are winning, no matter like if the record is the same, cheap and, and young is better than old and expensive. <laughs> no matter, like, like, no matter what, right? Like, I mean, and we think it'd probably be about the same. Like if mm-hmm. you had Larry marketing on the team still. Mm-hmm. I think um, when it comes to old and expensive, for me, it just depends on who it is, uh, because there are many occasions I'd rather take old and expensive over over young and cheap, because at some point in time, you're going to get what you pay for. And yeah. what I'm going to pay for is is people who, you know, have that experience. What old, old means with usually old means wisdom and it comes with experience and guys who can know how to win and, and get to certain points. Miami Heat. Uh, are kind of a good example of the a blend of both of mm-hmm. the old and and expensive and the young and cheap. I I kind of see it both ways. Like mm-hmm. in the scenario that like you're setting up, Doug, it to me helps you find maybe a couple of young pieces 
And then when you're kind of building towards something, that's when you strike while the iron's hot to kind of add maybe the overpriced veteran if, if you're kind of knocking on the door of contention. Like, I, that's how I've always seen it, if you're kind of building up. I don't know how you guys think about that. I looked into this a little bit just because I argue about this kind of thing with people all the time. And, you know, for anyone who's followed me for a long period of time, you would probably know my MO is generally pretty draft heavy mm -hmm. and always stay flexible, always stay reasonably young. Don't box yourselves in the corners. It's no wonder that I like the last regime a lot. Um, I probably would also act similarly conservatively and aggressive about always staying young and flexible until I had what I felt was the right talent. Like when we had Derek Rose, you had the right talent. Now it's time to cash in your chips. 90% of the teams that have won 50 plus games in the last 20 years had a star player that they got through the draft. Like you need a star player, you get to the draft. You just need one. Mm -hmm. It's like true 90% of the time. If you don't have mm -hmm. one, like that's how you actually attract the really good veteran players. Like Kevin Durant went to Phoenix because Devin Booker is there. Like you just, you know, Bron James went to Miami because Dwayne Wade was there. He went back to Cleveland because Kyrie Irving was there. Um, he went to LA because he just wanted to be in LA, but you know, two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> so, you know, like you generally need a good young star player to attract the really good veteran talent. You mm -hmm. can get a guy like DeRozan or a guy like Vooch and they're not terrible guys, but those aren't guys that are going to lead you anywhere deep into the playoffs. Vooch had 42 wins. This is career best before getting here. Damar had a little bit more success, you know, obviously with Kyle Lowry in Toronto. So, you know, but you're not going to get that top end star without having a young star on your team already. Yeah. Or, or I'm glad you put that caveat in there because, or unless it's just LA. Right? Or you, unless you it's just want to go there. You just want to go there because it's LA. So yes, no, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, and, but I think like at some point in time, those young talents are going to become old and expensive. Yeah. And, and over that time, that's, what you'll do you still stay with that or do you you know mm. go away from that to get young and cheap and when do you do that and i think that's becomes that that million dollar billion dollar question that you know guys are always asking uh in in, in the nba how long do you how long is too long uh how long do you stay with it and how long do you go with it i think it just depends on the special like the special talent of the player like you just said uh doug like you're gonna need a superstar you know and a lot of that is coming in the draft it's very rare that they're coming in free agency. Jimmy Butler is is a rare case that you can get that kind of star uh, in free agency that transformed your team. Now, you mentioned even Tyrese Halliburton, that still was a trade, you know? Like, that wasn't uh, somebody that they drafted. They got that in the trade. So it can happen in, in those kind of ways. It more so happens in a draft. So you can still get guys young and cheap, you know, in any kind of way. But old and expensive usually comes with winning. And I like winning. <laughs> I, 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 I enjoy it a lot. And so I don't mind paying for it if it's the right player. Like a LeBron, yes, I'm paying for it. Durant, yes, I'm paying for it. All those guys, I'm, I'm paying whatever you need me to pay to get them here on my squad. Kawhi Leonard, you saw the Clippers do all that money, that gave up all that money just to get him on the squad. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, the problem with old, with young and cheap sometimes is you got to keep recycling that until it finally hits and then you become old and expensive because it finally hit but when do you become when does it become old and expensive you know yeah and maybe just to caveat what i said a little bit or to bring it back i said all yeah. other things being equal 
Like if I'm winning yes, 45 games with young and cheap, it's better than 45 games with old and expensive. And I think your counterpoint a little bit is you're unlikely to win 45 young and cheap and 45 old and expensive. Like usually old and expensive is going to get you more wins. And and when usually. that's the case, when that's the case, I agree with you. There's like a, you know, it's like one of these things, like when you are the, a great counterpoint to this is the Dallas, Dallas Mavericks in 2010-11. You know, it's like Dirk is getting up there in years and they had not been able to cross and they started winning less games each season from going around a 60-win team to like a 50-win team. And, you know, there's a real case to saying maybe it's time to move on from Dirk and reset. And they stuck with him and they ended up winning a title. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that was like old and expensive of like a really good star player who was probably top 30 all time, um, maybe maybe even top 20, depending on your view. You know, mm-hmm. you know, to me, DeRozan and Booch just aren't in that category. And that's that's that really was the problem. Like if we brought in like a real star player and I said when all this stuff was made, if we make the second round, I'll say it was worth it. Like I'm not like you got to win a title. If you get me to the second round, I'll say, yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. I'm I'm in. And uh, hmm. we, we weren't able to do that. I think the root of all of this is like you still don't have that established star, no matter what, like through building through the draft, acquiring through these trades and free agency. I think that's been the root of, of what's gotten us to this point. There still isn't really that star or nearly ascending star. Um, and I guess it's kind of like a little ironic, you know, they they make the move to change the front office heading into that draft. And man, if they maybe just waited and, and kept Gar Foreman around, hey, maybe they could have gotten that star in Tyrese Halliburton, but say that a little jokingly. You maybe know. Boylan would have screwed him up though. So yeah, that, that's that's true too. <laughs> they, they, they also I mean, would have totally kept Boylan. So it's like yeah. On yes. the one hand, it, it, Halliburton. On the other hand, like we, they were fighting to keep Boylan. So can we just so get? True. Can we just line up all the timelines perfectly at one point? Can, like, can that just happen? That's like uh, that. Yeah, it, it would have been would have been interesting. Like. You know, had they we talked about this actually in an episode we did the the first episode we dropped for this analyzing Acme series. We actually did look at the drafting of Patrick Williams and spent a lot of time talking about, you know, what if the Bulls did pick Tyrese Halliburton? And I mean, we could be having a totally different conversation about this whole, you know, youth movement idea. I just want to get things a little steered back here to the trading of the two, I think key pieces of when this youth movement uh, was put to rest. And it started with, of course, the trading of Wendell Carter in that Vooch deal at the 2021 trade deadline. So I want to start with you, Dave, and then we'll go to you, Doug. What was your initial reaction to that trade? And I know it's kind of hard because you you look at it in hindsight now. Um, and also you kind of look at it in the lens of getting Nikola Vucevic. But I'm more curious in what you thought about parting ways with Wendell Carter at that point, because it was a very uneven season mm-hmm. um, in that COVID shortened season. So what was your initial reaction to that when Wendell Carter was added to that trade package for Nikola Vucevic? Oh, no, I, I remember my reaction very well. I was ecstatic. I couldn't wait. I was super excited. I I was, yes, I was over the moon uh, with this. I didn't care who we gave up to get that player because Vooch was somebody I was coveting for about two years because I had watched him uh, bust Lowry's behind several times uh, in Orlando. He he was he was unreal. When he, and I to the point I remember writing an article about 
Lowry that included Vooch in the article I was writing for NBC Sports Chicago because I was just like, this guy is just something else. Like he doesn't think he just it's all it was all beautiful uh reaction when the way he played. He just it was all reactionary. Uh and it was really smart. And I just really liked his game. Plus, couple that at the, at the, that point in time, his three-point shooting was on fire. So for me, I didn't mind it at all because I don't mind erring on the side of winning. And if you make that move, that means you're telling me I'm really trying to win. And we really straight up trying to win. If that's not a move you make where you're like, okay, I'm done after this move. We're finished. That's a move you make where you're like, oh, yeah, we're setting up for something really serious. So if you're trading those kind of assets plus a Wendell Carter Jr., yeah, I'm like, I got excited for that. And I was like, we're we're trying to win here. I have no problem with that. I wasn't a big Wendell fan uh, anyway. and I, So it didn't bother me at all uh, getting rid of him. The two picks, I bit my lip on a little bit because I didn't know about two first-round picks. I was like, I don't know about two, but fine. I'll deal with it. I'll live with it. It's fine. Because you, we just traded for a player that's going to help elevate us and, and get us somewhere. And for a few games, for a first half of an NBA season, it looked pretty right. And then it did not, and it all came tumbling down. I pretty much hated it uh, from the <laughs> moment. And the thing that was weird for me is I thought, like, you, you tend to think people think like you by default. Mm-hmm. Like just normally, your normal thought is like, if I think this way, other people think this way. And I was so shocked that every single person I talked to about this trade liked it. And I was like, maybe I'm just really dumb. And for to the reverse of what Dave said, for the first half of the season, I thought, man, I guess I am an idiot. Like, I guess this just was the thing to do. Like, uh, but all of the things I said the time we made the trade, like you, you have a good chance of giving up two lottery picks. You have a good chance of giving three assets that are going to be more valuable than Vooch by the end of Vooch's contract. You're too far away for this trade to get you anywhere meaningful. And then you're going to have to reset. You're going to have to reset around a lot less things. So in the long run, all the things that I was really concerned about happened. I do tend to look at things as like a probability of like outcomes. And so we really fell on like the very low end of the probability of outcomes. I thought we'd at least get like two first rounder, two first round exits, maybe three first round exits out of it. Um, but I was not a fan of the move when it was made. I just thought it was like, this is a desperate to make the first round, but there's nothing to do afterwards kind of kind of move. So I do want to get into a question just regarding like which trade away you think hurts a little more, Wendell or or Laurie. But before we get to that, I actually want to ask one question about Laurie. Why do you think he never broke through here? Was it uh, the Jim Boylan effect or do you think there was partially some of it on him just having maybe too much pressure surrounding him and, you know, what he was supposed to be after that draft day trade? Like, why, why don't you think he broke through the way he has in the last couple of seasons? I guess I'd say a few things. One, just time. <laughs> like guys peak around 26, 27 and so, you know, we traded him away when he was 23. And, you know, while he was here his last year here, he shot 40% from three. He had a year, his second year, he had 18.7 uh, points a game. You know, so he had shown a lot of signs here. You know, like really, if you consider him compared to Patrick Williams, how excited people get about Patrick Williams, the amount Larry showed was tremendous uh, in comparison. So, 
you know, I think a lot of it was time. You know, he wasn't great in Cleveland. His his year there was even worse, you know, than his year with us. Um, you know, right afterwards, or you know, maybe about the same. So I think it was that. And then Utah's not really a great team. So lots of opportunity. They just gave him the ball. He got to be the man. He got to play a little differently. He got to play through stuff. So I think those were the two big things uh, that that probably swung his game forward. It's just we weren't patient enough, and you know we we let Zach have the ball around. Uh, sorry, have the ball all the time as the main guy, and didn't have good point guard play to Dave's point earlier. Oh, uh, definitely uh, the ball headed menace for sure. Uh, <laughs> one of the reasons, without a doubt, in my mind, this is the same man that told him he want he should be grabbing twenty to thirty rebounds a game. Um, he wanted Lowry to get the ball, get the rebound, and, and you know be the guy to bring it up the floor and all those things. And he he wanted that. He wanted all that stuff from Lowry. So Lowry was like, "That's crazy. <laughs> That's insane." I don't. Uh, and Lowry himself said he fell out of love with basketball here in Chicago. These were his words. He said, "I fell out of love here uh, with the game." And when a player falls out of love with the game, that it's it, you'll see it reflected you really will and you saw it with Lowry like he wasn't happy it's just really that simple he was not happy here I remember when Billy Donovan first got here and he said I, I asked Zach how often do you and uh, Lowry talk about running pick and roll and he said we've never had that discussion <laughs> he's like we never even talked about it and he's, he was flabbergasted. He was shocked that they even even discussed it. So that's just part of what I'm saying. Like, his love for the game was gone. He found it in Cleveland. Doug's right. The numbers don't reflect it. But if you watched a few of his games, uh, when he was cooking, like, he he really kind of found his love again uh, for the game of basketball. He really enjoyed himself. And when he went to Utah, and you can ask Matt and John and, and – Matt, well, definitely Matt and John. When, when he went to Utah, the day he signed, I texted all of them and said, Lowry is going to snap in Utah. He is. This is a perfect place for him. He is going to snap. He is going to ball clean out. He is in a place that is basically Finland here in the United States. So he is in a perfect situation. And Doug, you're right. Like building an offense, having an offense basically uh, built around him allowed him to showcase more. But to go from that to an all-star starter, is crazy you know what i mean that is really really wild so yeah i just it was the ball-headed menace and he really felt out of love with the game of basketball here in chicago one thing also to add on to a couple of things you said dave if i recall correctly they also asked him to to bulk up yes he was mm-hmm. here like instead of <laughs> yes. to slim down they wanted yes. him to bulk up to play you know stretch five Mm-hmm. rather than to be athletic in, in kind of play three, four tweener. And I yep. think that was a disservice and probably also part of to what you said, Dave, which is a great point of him falling out of love with the game, you know, it just wasn't who he wanted to be or how he wanted to play. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. The bald headed menace uh, it was, it was a big part of that. And uh, yeah, it's a shame. I wasn't, I wasn't someone banging the drum to keep Lowry. You know, I, I give Acme all kinds of crap about being lousy I didn't see Lowry like <laughs> developing into this like Dave did, you know, after Cleveland or at any point. So, um, you know, I didn't I didn't see that coming. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a shame we missed on it. You know, it really is. Hmm. Remember, and, and you're so right, Doug, because remember, he was injured all the time. 
when when that was occurring because he was trying to they were making him get bigger and change you know his kind of style of game his kind of style of play he was basically running the same the same play every single time then he go stand in the corner you know like it was just it was, it was frustrating to watch and then when you find out why you understand a little bit more why certain guys just have to be involved uh with the offense to get that out of them and and Lowry's one of those guys so let me ask you guys what move are you less forgiving of is it trading Wendell and draft capital for Vooch or trading away Lowry and seeing him become an all-star so I'll start with with you Dave and then we'll go to Doug less forgiving um well I didn't care about Wendell like I cared about Lowry but at the same time I was I was very happy for Lowry because I knew it wasn't going to happen here so when people say man and they look back on it and they talk about, oh, man, we had them. They could have done this. There was nothing in my brain that said that was going to happen here. The reason I'm going to say Wendell is because of the picks. It's not because of Wendell. Uh, I think he's the same kind of player. And I'm not saying that as a diss. Like, he, he's who I thought he would be. Um, and he's really good. And I'm not saying that to be disrespectful towards him. But he is who I thought he would be. But it's the picks. Because the picks are, you know, turned into Wagner and... Um, we don't know what the other one, as far as I know it turned into Howard, but we don't know what that would have turned into depending on where the bulls finished, uh, what it could have been. So giving away those picks, I think for me is something in hindsight that I didn't want to do. Yeah, I would agree with Dave. I thought we needed to move on from Lowry as well. Like he, he wasn't having a great year here and he was a free agent. You had a lot of discussions about what his contract was worth. I said I would have kept him at $16 million, which is what he ended up making. So I would have mm-hmm. kept him at that price. I didn't foresee what he became. And I think the thing is his jump from where he was as a bull to where he became as a member of the Utah Jazz was like really unusual. That's not like a common career path thing. So if you're sitting back and running a team and your team is winning about 30 games a year and you think, you know what I should do? I should trade three first round draft picks for guys over 30, you're a moron. Like that's just not a thing you do when your team wins 30 games a year. So like strategically, it's just like, what are you even thinking when you do this? Now, if the guy you brought in was LeBron James or Kevin Durant or something to like what they've said earlier. Okay. But to bring in like two guys over 30 who didn't make the all-star game the previous year, and are like not regular all-star appearance type guys. They're like fringe quasi stars who are more stat stuffers than win impactors. Like that's just a terrible strategy. And when you think about the guys they brought in and how they fit together, you know, it's like, oh, we'll bring in a low post center and a guy who's got no three point game, you know, so we're going to now have two of our three starters who can't shoot threes. And I think they totally bought into the fact that Vooch is shooting great from three that one year. And I made this point over and over when we made the trade. Like, he's got a half season of good three-point shooting in his whole career. There's a better chance that this is an anomaly than it is a real skill. And that turned out to be exactly mm. what it is. Like, it's just, he's got 12 years of not shooting threes and a half season of shooting threes. And everyone's like, ah, oh, he's a great three-point shooter. Well, you know, maybe not. And so, like, to me, that was just, like, strategically unforgivable to like just completely misunderstand your situation like that. The Lowry thing, it was just, yeah, he made an unprecedented leap. And in a lot of ways that one hurts more because he could have been a young star for us. And Wendell is, you know, like whatever, he's a fine player to Dave's points, fine player, but, but like just 
in in the moment, you should have known better than to, to be like, yeah, we're going to just trade all our picks to try and win right now with short-term players. This is a question I've been kind of asking in some of the different episodes because I think the point of player development is kind of a, a common theme. I think in this episode, we're talking about axing the young core. You can even get into a discussion of, well, why haven't really young players developed here in Chicago? And I know we brought up the previous regime, previous coaching staff, but you know, if, if you were to look at what's occurred under Acme, and if you had to make like the old fashioned pie chart, who do you put the blame on for the lack of a player development strategy from day one? Are, are you putting that on Acme a little more? Or are you putting it on the Reinsdorfs for maybe not beefing up some of those departments where could help this? Do you put some of that blame on Billy Donovan? Like, I'll start with you, uh, Doug, and then we'll go to Dave. Like, if you had to make the the pie chart, who are you giving most of that uh, blame to for not really helping with the Bulls player development of, of young talent? I put 95% of player development on the individual player themselves. Mm. These guys have professional coaches who are absolute specialists in what they do that work out with them individually for thousands of hours a, a year if they want to. It's all on them. And and Acme, to their credit, I'm not going to say it's worked out well, but to their credit, they added player development coaches. There's like a coach or assistant coach or player development specialist. Like the total number of those guys in the organization is like one per player on the roster. Plus these guys all have their individual coaches. I just don't believe it's like they didn't invest enough in those guys. It's just on the players. And you, you can never know both ways. Like is is a guy better because, you know, he just had a better coach. You know, like sometimes it's an environment thing. Like a guy is better when he gets a better opportunity. And we saw that with Lowry. Like, I don't know that the environment was so bad for Lowry. Maybe it was because Jim Borland was just, just like an anomaly level bad. Like, I don't know. I don't know like how he survived. I really don't like he was so bad. So maybe, maybe that was like really bad, but I don't think Acme did or the Reinsdorfs did anything really bad in terms of player development. And, you know, we've seen Kobe White really come along now just this season. And when I look mm -hmm. at like Pat Williams, do I think like, you know, like there's just not enough opportunity given to him or there's not enough people helping him? No, I mean, like the whole team talks about how they want Pat to be more aggressive and try to get him to be more aggressive and like all this other stuff. Like it's just on him. It's on him. It's not on anyone else. And he's, he's also looking a little better now, but Better or worse for any of these guys, like 90% of it is on the player themselves. And the other 10% is the chances they get probably by the head coach and based on who their teammates are and what opportunities and role they have within the offense. Mm. I feel a little differently. Um, well, one, when whether it's winning or losing, I feel everybody gets a piece. So everybody takes a piece. And it always starts at the top for me. But with the Bulls, player development was something they never did. One, it's hard to... It makes sense when, one, you had the greatest basketball player of all time, and then you went into Derrick Rose. So what what are we doing? You know, it's like, dude, we're, we're pretty set here. Um, so I get that. But I think every other team in the NBA has always had some type of player development coach, um, somebody to help with that. I think the reason I can't put all that percentage on the players is watching how they're playing now after they actually got – a coach to show them how to shoot and get some player development in them. Now, now Kobe white said it when he was like, I always knew that I could shoot, but I never knew why. 
and I never knew why I missed the shot. He's like now under uh I call him General Patton. Under Patton, he he tells him, you know, why he missed the shot. Now he knows why he missed. And so when he takes the next shot, he understands his game better. Knowledge of self makes you a better person and a better player. So if you don't have that knowledge, you only know what you know in this world. You can have all the coaches you want and keep doing the same thing. But if you're putting that square peg in a round hole because that's all you know, it's never going to work. Somebody has to come along and show you, like, yo, this isn't working right here. How about you try it this way? Certain players don't need it. Certain players do. But I think every team should have it. The Bulls didn't. And that's an, for me, that's not a failure on players. That's a failure on staff. That's a failure on um, front office, you know, and those, those kind of guys. But they do get a blame on that for sure because Doug's right. You're the one, you know, at some point in time, it has to be on you. You're the one who's got to go out there and shoot the ball. You're the one who's got to go out there and perform. You're the one who has to go out there and do those things that they want to show you. But for me also, somebody has to show you, you know, a right way to do it as well. Because if you're doing it wrong, I want somebody to tell me that it's wrong. Like I only know what I what I what I kind of know out here, man. So I can't I can't put it all on the play. I put it on everyone. So I would spread that pie equally. Probably give front office, I mean uh up top more because everything kind of starts at the top. Before I get you guys like final grades and stuff, I, I I do want you guys to give me like a, a letter grade to assess all of the the decision here. But I'm actually curious what you guys think, what's going on right now. As we sit here in December, there's a lot of rumblings about the Bulls possibly being active in the trade market, especially as it relates to Zach Levine, maybe some other players, maybe not. I'm curious, and I'll start with you, Dave, and then we'll go to you, Doug. Why do you think they've been stubborn to reset to a youth movement and recoup assets? Like, is it ego? Is it just wanting to see this vision through? Like, why do you think they're not maybe as itchy as maybe some of us in the fan base are to hit the reset button a little sooner than I guess than they're, they're willing to do it. I think, so. I think it, I think it would be a lie to say some of it isn't ego. Cause I think everybody who plays anything, it has an ego, uh, whether they know it or not, it could be very, very small or it could be huge, but you, you have a little bit of an ego. So I think some of it is that um, some of it, I think is to still want to see your vision through, because it's your vision. And so you kind of want to see it go through. So this is why Lonzo, you know, they're still, I guarantee you, they're still holding this hope out, you know, for Lonzo to come back next year. I guarantee you. So they still have that hope and that little bit of that ego. And I think that's stopping them from doing it. But I think more so than anything, it's not who they are, especially AK. AK has told you who he is. He doesn't, this is the man who said, I don't want to draft high in the draft i want he likes drafting you know in the lower part of the draft he has said this um because i guarantee you if they had uh the eighth pick and patrick williams there they would have took him there the same way they would have took him at the four pick because that's who they wanted he's just drafting for who he wants and who he uh feels the team needs not necessarily the best player like a tyree sir halliburton who's everybody saying who went 12th by the way I need to always like to throw that out to people. He went 12th, all right? He got passed over by a lot of people. Um, but I think that they want to see their vision through. Now, it does become stubborn after a while because keeping Caruso doesn't make any sense to me. I wanted to trade him last year. I thought they should have traded him last year for assets 
get some draft picks, you know, because he's, as I told you many times, Matt, he's rims, you know, he rims on a car, you know, when your car needs engine work, you don't need a new set of, you know, glossy, amazing, shiny rims on your car. Your car doesn't run. So what's the point of them? Trade them, you know what I'm saying? Get you some assets. You can trade DeMar at the end of the season, not at the end of the season. If you trade DeMar during the season, I'm not mad at that. I honestly think I see where he fits on this team and why the young guys love him. So I get it why you would probably keep him. Uh, But if they trade, I'm not mad at that uh, either. But it is a little stubborn. It is a little ego. It is wanting to see their vision through. But it's also just not who they are. They told you they wanted to come make the playoffs. That's what they want to do. And resetting this means that that's kind of out the window. So I think that's that's where we are, why we are where we are. Yeah, I want to maybe bridge on one point Dave sure. made about Tyrese Halliburton going 12th. I totally agree. I say like the last regime would have drafted him just because it's funny. Like, you, you know, they loved Iowa oh, State. They would have took him, no question. But, but like, I don't blame them for not taking him, just to be clear. I don't blame them. Like that was a here's ten guys that are all like in this giant crapshoot, and you know for the most part, Pat's probably pretty similar to most of those guys still, mm-hmm. maybe even more valuable than a lot of them. So you know I don't blame them for taking Pat over uh, Halliburton. I do blame them for taking Dalen Terry, and I do blame them a little <laughs> bit for multiple years in a row taking a guy who didn't start and didn't dominate and wasn't great in college. And thinking like, oh, he's going to be a great pro. Like if you're not scoring 10 points a game in college, you know, maybe you're not going to be an offensive player in the NBA. Like, I don't know how many examples there are of that being true, where a guy scored less than 10 a game and didn't start for his college team and then was like a stud in the NBA. But my guess is like probably, you know, somewhere between zero and five. So it's just like a weird thing that they did that twice. And everyone around Dalen Terry is like really good. So like Pat, it was like they like everyone around him also sucked, but everyone around Terry they could have taken was really good. And Terry was like an out of nowhere pick. Anyway, uh, getting past that as to why they didn't uh, just sell off. I, I just think they just don't want to admit they're wrong about anything. Like they have not moved off of a guy that they brought in since they got here. Like they have not moved off a significant piece they have brought in in like three years now. And, you know, they're looking at trading Zach now. They're not. And and then trying to build around Tamar and Vooch. And I get it. You know, exact, Zach asked out. So there's probably not a lot of thought about that. But these guys do not seem like they are fit for this job. They have sunk cost theory. They could have moved these guys for different veterans. They could move Caruso, like to Dave's point, you know, for future assets. They could do a lot of things to mix up what's going on, but they're just like unable so far to admit that anything they've done is a mistake. And every time they speak, they even talk about that. Like at the end of the season, how they tried to hang a banner on being 14 and nine after the all-star break. You know, it's just, it's just a weird vibe where I just, it, it's hard for me to listen to what they've said and think that they're really qualified to have the roles they do. Like they just do not seem to understand what's going on around them. They talk about like, Oh, we're going to fix our shooting profile. Like all these things they said they're going to do, like they've not really been able to successfully do very well. And they, they, I don't know. I, I just don't see them being aggressive enough to, they're very aggressive with all the guys they inherited, 
They have not been aggressive with any of the guys that they brought in. Well, you know, the scary thing is, too, is we're getting into a scenario now where they're going to be selling low. And yeah. I think that's the thing that scares me the most is you're not really going to probably be able to recoup any of these assets for what you might have been able to recoup them for, even if you you know, did it this summer or even started at last year's trade deadline. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there was a rumor that the Bulls could have got three first round picks from the Knicks. And I think it was like Quentin Grimes and a lot those picks were like largely protected. They weren't great picks. I don't want to mislead anyone. All picks are not created equal. Um, there were, there are picks that were all like lottery protected, but still you would take that today for Zach. Wouldn't you like, do you think we're yep. going to get three first round picks lottery protected or otherwise for Zach today? Uh, mm -hmm. so yeah, we're absolutely going to sell low on Zach. It's, it's too late to even sell low on Vooch. And, you know, I don't think we're going to sell DeMar at all. He, we're either going to sign him to a big extension or we're going to watch him walk. So it, it just hasn't been a good job of asset management. I think is like from a very, very broad context. Uh, they've, they've not been able to see when their assets are at high value or low value, you know, or when it's time to move or not move. And again, that just to me is like the overall vibe that I don't think they're fit for the position they hold. So I think I already know the answer from both of you on this, but I want to ask it and just get it on the record. If you had to give a final grade for this decision to ax the young core, what would that letter grade be? And I'll, I'll start with you, Doug. And then go to you, Dave. I, I'm going to surprise you probably a little bit. And I'm going to say it's like a C. Well, I, I don't think it was so bad. They decided <laughs> to ax the young core. Like it wasn't working here. What bothered me more was the decisions in the way that they axed it. So to just say, like, was it a bad idea to give up on what you had? Like, no, we didn't have anything special. And you know, even the guys that left, I don't think were like really special. But what was bad is the what, what they decided to try to get back for that young core and to try to win now. And mm. so just the decision to like move on from that group, I'm I'm kind of like, eh, about like, I think it would have been fine if for them to move on. It's just, you should have moved on to get more long-term future-oriented assets, try and get your star in the draft, you know, whatever, not try and get these like very short-term win-now pieces with all these extra first round picks. Like that's the part that hurts me was the three first round picks they gave up for DeMar and Vooch combined. That's mm. what killed me. Not the fact that they're like, Oh, we lost Lowry, lost Wendell. Like those guys weren't going to light it up here, but it was that you gave up the rest of your future beyond the young core was the, the thing that really, you know, hurts me. Hmm. I think uh, Doug said it perfectly. Like, that's exactly what I was thinking. Um, yeah. You get to see, it's not so much, what you did but how you did it um i didn't my, like i said i celebrated uh when you got vooch but i only winced when i heard two first round picks because i was like mm, maybe one two yeah and then everything you were here I, I celebrated when we got demar and then i heard another first round pick you know and i i like the fact that they went for it i would never fault anybody trying to win ever i would never fault anybody trying to make these decisions to try to improve your team to try to win um, but I am a person who doesn't like giving up a ton of assets. I'll give up some for sure, but a ton of them, I don't like getting, giving up and they gambled on themselves because that's why those picks were so protected. Um, cause they thought that by that point in time, they would be, you know, in the playoffs all the time that it's really a Miami heat, Pat Riley mentality that AK has. Cause Pat Riley wants to go to the playoffs all the time, every time. 
and that's how he, it has to be for him. The difference is they actually have one of the greatest coaches, you know what I'm saying, going out there. And they they are just tremendous in picking what they need and finding diamonds in the rough. That has not been the case here in Chicago. We gave them one of the diamonds. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, they're not to them, but, you know, not directly handed it uh, to Miami, but got rid of it, went to uh, Minnesota, went to Philly, uh, ended up in Miami. And just to make the point clear, I'm not mad that they traded Jimmy Butler. I'm just stating how he developed. Um, but yeah, like, I think that's what I would give them though. Like they would get that C uh, from me, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not mad that they made a decision on getting rid of, you know, these younger guys and those younger guys kind of turned into something really solid. I'm not mad at that. They kept Kobe who has turned into something that I think everybody likes right about now. So yeah, they get a C. Um, for me, they got a couple more years before I'm just like, okay, what the hell are y'all doing? But yeah, I, I'll I'll give them a C. I'll give them a C. Let me end on this question. I'm, I'm going to bring a, a walk on question that I wasn't planning to ask. But you know, Doug, you had mentioned this kind of early on when I asked that first question about when Arturis Karnaschovas was hired, and you kind of mentioned like, was there a vision or a plan? that was sort of handed to them by ownership by Michael Reinsdorf Mm. that you have to find a way to turn this around within a year, like make us competitive relevant in a year. How much blame do you think ownership should get on setting the tone that way? If that's the case, because I I get the feeling that was sort of coming down as a mandate from ownership, given how, you know, things sort of turned at the all-star break in 2020, right before things shut down, you kind of remember like there was a lot of animosity building up in the fan base. There was a lot of negative attention being brought the Bulls way. Um, And if that was the mandate, like how much do you put on ownership for that being the vision that they sort of set or the path they sort of set for this new front office they were putting together? I guess I'll start. I don't know if you you called anyone up, but uh, I would say it's, Interesting because I think ownership gets the majority of that blame if they did that. And I think they did. I don't think they went in and told Arturis Karnaschovas, hey, do whatever you can to make the playoffs now. Mm -hmm. I think they interviewed a bunch of guys and the guy who said, I'm going to get you into the playoffs right away and get you out of this youth movement was the guy they picked. And so I don't think Arturis acted in a way to meet what Michael Reinsdorf wanted. I think Michael Reinsdorf chose him because he already wanted to act in that way. Mm. And so in that sense, you know, both are culpable. But if it wasn't Arturis, we were going to get a different version of Arturis because we weren't going to hire someone who said, I'm a draft genius. I'm going to get you stars in the draft. You know, they'd just gone through a bunch of lottery picks. And I, I think Michael Reinsdorf wanted to get back in the playoffs. Now, from an execution standpoint, I think even if that was your plan, the way you executed that plan was very poor. And I think they overpaid. Like, I don't think other people are going to bid against them in a lot of the stuff they did. Like, DeMar DeRozan's other contract offer was for three years, $15 million. 
I talked about it on Draymond Green's podcast. And we paid him $87 million. You know, like we just overpaid to make things happen. Like the Vooch trade, did we have to take him bad salary as well as everything else we did for that trade? Like it just feels like their execution was also really bad. Like you could have made even the same moves. And had you not taken on that bad salary in the Vooch trade, you probably wouldn't have had to give up the first rounder to San Antonio to get them to take that bad salary back that you inherited from Vooch. So like you could have maybe done the whole thing. And if you had negotiated better, saved yourself two of those three first round picks. And you might not be looking at this in quite the same level of disaster, even with the same moves. So, mm -hmm. you know, from an execution standpoint, I still think they did very poor from a strategic standpoint. I do think Reinsdorf had a lot to say about it, but I don't think he led Arturis anywhere. He didn't want to go already. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, Arturis had that mindset coming in. It wasn't given to him. That That's how he thought. I want to win. He stated a million times, this is my favorite. He loves the Bulls. I mean, come on, dude. He was playing against Jordan on the Dream Team. Like, he still talks about this. Like, he loves the Chicago Bulls. He hired Mark Eversley after watching episode one of The Last Dance. Like, he's like, I was going to wait a few days, but after watching that, I just wanted to get started. He loves the Chicago Bulls. He wants to see them win. So, yeah, that's his mentality. That was his mentality coming in. And, again, it's a mentality that I honor. I love that fact that people want to come in and want to win. Um no matter how they want to do it, I'm okay with it. And that's why I always give, like I said, those kind of GMs five years because everybody's got a different way to get to the top. It's no one way uh, to get there. So I wanted to see which way he wanted to go about it. It And again, and I have to continue to say it, but it looked smart and it looked good when he, when he, um, when they were playing, everything was clicking. It looked good. Now, of course they were bum slaying a lot. But we weren't used to bum slaying. We were used to being the bums and, and getting beat on a lot. There was no four-game winning streak in Zach Levine's career before that occurred. It happened the first four games of the season. So getting those things and getting uh, multiple players to an all-star, getting an all-NBA basketball player, second-team all-NBA basketball player uh, on your team, Getting a point guard and another guard who, if Lonzo stayed healthy, would have been first team all defense uh, that year. Like they had, it looked good. Like you couldn't wait to sit and watch the Bulls and enjoy what you were looking at. Kobe White, you know, uh, looking like he was, you know, finding himself, you know, in, in some type of development. He was getting hot, you know, coming off the bench, uh, starting around mid-November into December, which is kind of his M.O., but it all looked good, and then it came crashing down. And that's when you're like, uh-oh, wait a minute. What are you doing? I don't know if I trust what you're doing out here. Because you can't do it the same way when you get something that catastrophic. It was being held together by spit, glue, and grease. And you know what I mean? It really was. That's what Lonzo was. And once he went down, it changed everything. And that's how you kind of have to judge him on this. And it's not fair, but that's the truth. Because it's a what have you done for me lately kind of thing. And what has been done for you lately is not something that most are agreeing with. And most are even not even just agreeing with, but even understanding what you're trying to do. And so that's where the fall kind of comes uh, when we're talking about AK and, and that front office. But no, I, I do think, Matt, that he came in with that mentality. I think Doug is dead on. Like he came in with that mentality to win and to bring the Bulls to that level 
what and I still think it's in his mind right now when he's making those moves. And I think that's part of the hindrance, to be real with you. Guys, this was a really good discussion. Um, Real quick, starting with Dave, then Doug, where can folks find your content? Where can they follow you? I'm, I'm sure most Bulls Nation does follow you guys already and knows where your content is. But for the ones that have been in a coma or, you know, just came out of a cave, maybe let them know. You you well, first, Dave, then you, Doug. Shout out to you coming out of a cave. I hope you got some good sleep. Um, You can find me at Ball Sport sports b-a-w-l sports that is me on twitter um you can also find me at chgo bulls i'm there doing our podcast it's on youtube uh it's on spotify anywhere you listen or watch podcasts we are there it's myself matt peck uh will gottlieb and mark k and we're talking bulls daily like every single day five days a week we are talking about the chicago bulls so game day no game day we are on and we are discussing that team because we enjoy, you know, punishment. <laughs> yeah, I, you can probably Google the Big Red Bus or the Chicago Bulls beat and you'll find me. Uh, there's probably better links, but uh, yeah, if, if you're not already listening, you're probably not interested, is my guess. <laughs> you know, like a, I know there's like 200 people who have still listened to me after like the 20 years since I started the show. And I appreciate uh, each and every one of you. Um but uh, yeah, my my successors like Dave and Matt and uh, I guess you, Matt, and all these other people, you do a much better job than me. Uh, it's awesome actually seeing how great the Bulls podcast community has grown over the years. It's it's uh, it's really tremendous uh, talking with all of you uh, when I get the chance to. Thank you, Doug. Very oh. kind, man. Yeah, and it, hey, wouldn't have started without uh, without. Yeah, it right. seemed like one Bulls podcaster back in the day that I think we all yeah. listened to. So. You're, you're um, the reason I started, Doug. You're the reason yeah. we started doing Bulls podcast because Fred took me to watch y'all live doing it at a subway on our work break. He took me <laughs> over there Someone's got to be Wally Pip. Is uh... yes, <laughs> I'm thrilled to have uh, pulled that up. Yes, man, absolutely. I love it. All right, guys, thanks again for coming on, and we'll be back with some more episodes of Analyzing Acme in the coming weeks. Thank you for listening to the Rebuildable Podcast. Be sure to check us out and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you stream your podcasts.